Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to James chapter 4. You'll see in your bulletin that we have two Scripture passages there, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7, 1, and James chapter 4, and that is the information that I'd sent for the bulletin. But we're just going to read James chapter 4, as that's in particular the passage of Scripture that we're going to be expounding and applying this evening with God's help. Uh, We may refer to the other passage, but let's focus our attention here on James chapter 4. The epistle of James chapter 4, we'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Let's pay careful attention now to God's Word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the, Lord, with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and relying upon His Holy Spirit, let's focus our attention upon verse 4 and following of James chapter 4, the passage that we just read together. Here, the Apostle confronts 
the believers to whom he's writing this epistle. And he does it in a very stark and almost surprising way, given that he's writing to believers, visible church members, professing Christians. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He goes on to confront them and to provide them with a number of instructions so that they can heed this call to self-examination, to repentance, and so that they can have victory over the sins that have entangled them. And you see that in verse 7 and following. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, and weep, uh, humble yourselves, do not speak evil of one another, so on and so forth. He, he provides, as it says at least in the, in the Pew Bible paragraph heading, uh, cures for worldliness. He's confronting them and he provides them with practical instructions. And this is really characteristic of this entire epistle of James. Some have referred to it as New Testament wisdom literature because they see something akin to what Solomon is doing under inspiration in the book of Proverbs. And certainly there's quite a bit of proverbial uh, material in the epistle of James. It's not really wisdom literature, but you can see why they say that. There's something of that flavor to it. Uh, It provides practical instruction. And the tone of the epistle is very much ungarnished confrontation. He's just laying it out there, addressing issues in the lives of these Christians their practical Christian life. He's just uh, one thing after the next. He illustrates his points. It's not as though he's not sensitive to their situation. It's not not as though he never makes reference uh, to God's love. There is a reference uh, toward the end of the epistle to God's loving kindness and compassion toward Job. So, So there's something of sensitivity, but at the end of the day, this epistle, if you really read it carefully, and you look at what it says and what it doesn't say, is a stunning example of inspired biblical literature. And if you compare it to many of the other books of the New Testament, particularly the epistles of Paul and of Peter, even of John, it it really shows itself to be unique in many ways uh, in the way that he emphasizes practical instruction and biblical confrontation of the people of God. Uh, in, in some sense, this epistle, as you can see from the sermon title, it is a straightforward, you know, straight talk express kind of a call to get serious. Get serious with God. That's the point here of this entire epistle. It's time to grow up. It's time to get serious. And from the outset, chapter 1, uh, he brings to mind to the people of God the various trials that they're experiencing And, of course, he could come with a message of comfort, uh, but in this case, he doesn't do that. Of course, there's something comforting there, but in a way, he just says, count it all joy. It's just straightforward in words that maybe we would hesitate to use to people that were enduring trials. He says, listen, count it all joy because it's going to increase your maturity in the Christian faith, which is something that you need because you're hearing the word, but you're not doing it. 
You're coming to the Word of God. You're hearing it preached. You're looking at yourself in a mirror. You're seeing your sins and shortcomings. And then you're walking away and ignoring the whole thing. He says, if there's any value to your your trials and your afflictions, it's this, uh, that they will work maturity in your life. That's what he means when he says, verse 4, that... uh, you know, the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's saying you're imperfect, you're immature. You need to grow up. And, and he, he says this in ways that are so direct. He cuts to the chase and he makes his point. Chapter 2, you say you have faith, where are the works? Where's the lifestyle? Uh, Abraham was justified by faith, but that claim, that profession of faith was vindicated by his works. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son on the altar for the glory of God in obedience to God. Where's your works? Where's your practical Christian godliness? Uh, Faith without works, he says, is dead. Uh, Chapter 3, he speaks of church leaders, teachers in the church. Verse 1, receiving a stricter judgment. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Uh, If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. The word perfect there means mature. He's not saying we all sin and nobody's perfect, although that's true. What he's saying as well is that maturity means maturity in our words. Faith produces works. True saving faith works itself out through our lifestyle, and that includes our tongues, our lips. He, he says we need to tame our tongues. We need to restrain our tongues. This is Christianity 101. And if we're using the same tongue to bless God and curse our neighbor, he says we need to grow up. We need to deal with this. There's, there's no two ways about it. Uh, we, we claim to believe the wisdom of God, but we've embraced a demonic wisdom. Uh, we've embraced this wisdom from Beneath, earthly, sensual, demonic. These are the people of God. These are church members. He's confronting them. This is, this is just how James rolls. This is just how he preaches, how he writes here. Chapter 4, he says, uh, of course, they're not taming their tongue. Big surprise, there's fighting and quarreling among them. But he says, why is this happening? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's your hearts. You're lusting after worldly things. You desire pleasure. It's all about me, myself, and I. And so you're competing with other people. You're coming into conflict. You're coveting, uh, murdering, whether that's literal or not. Perhaps it is. But but there's violence here uh, in their hearts against others. Coveting, envying, even harming others to get what they want. Uh, Using their prayer life for personal pleasure rather than for the glory of God. He comes and he says in verse 4 of our text, adulterers. He's talking to church members here, many of whom are believers, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. This is strong language. As I said, this is an ungarnished confrontation. He doesn't gussy it up. In fact, uh, if you go to chapter 5, he addresses greed. He addresses rich people that take advantage of, of poor people. He addresses the issue of being patient under suffering and even implies at the end uh, that uh, chapter 5, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. Maybe some of the trials and afflictions are because God is chasing you. 
You need to confess your sin so that you'll be healed. Uh, There's so much here of a confrontational nature. And at the end, he he says we ought to seek not only to repent ourselves, but verse 20, uh, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. In other words, it's loving to confront. Love covers a multitude of sins. If, If James and with those who hear and put into practice this epistle repent and then are used to bring others to repentance, that loving confrontation will cover a multitude of sins. So he's saying, wake up, listen up, and um, you know, you could even say, suck it up, really. Uh, he's saying it's time to grow up and get serious. Now, what's, the, what's going on here? What's going on here? Let's think of his method. You can read the epistle of James from beginning to end, and let me tell you what you're not going to find in it. You're not going to find any direct reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, It mentions the Lord Jesus, but it doesn't mention His work of redemption. It doesn't mention His death. It doesn't mention His resurrection. Uh, As I said, there's a reference to God's love for Job in the Old Testament, but not a direct reference to God's love or Christ's love for His people in laying down His life. Rather, James takes the approach of speaking to people that he knows, they already know these gospel truths, but he takes the approach of saying, listen, God said it, the Bible says it, and that should be good enough. Obey the Bible. Obey God. You're a Christian, you profess faith in Christ, you believe in Christ, you've been saved by Christ. He takes these things for granted, as it were. He doesn't directly address them. He doesn't incorporate them into his argument for why you should obey God. This is stunning. It's not what we're used to. You know, we're 50-some sermons into the epistle of the Romans. We're not used to this. But this is how the Holy Spirit speaks through James. It's shocking. It's stunning. Uh, If you were to hear a sermon that didn't mention the death and resurrection of Christ, not even once, and called people to obedience without directly mentioning that Christ loved them and gave Himself for them, what would you think of it? What about an epistle inspired by the Spirit that does the exact same thing? God says it, the Bible declares it, just do it. This is difficult. This is not according to the way we've been trained as evangelical and Reformed Christians to think. Uh, It's difficult to wrestle with. Does this make the epistle of James sub-Christian? Some people suggest, uh, perhaps dispensationalists, that while this was written, uh, has relevance for Jewish Christians, maybe not so much for For Gentile Christians, Uh, I remember reading uh, a summary of the epistle of James in a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia this past week, and it it essentially said this book would fit well into the Old Testament prophets because you have references to Christ, but you don't really have a, a whole lot of emphasis on the gospel as we would understand it, the death and resurrection of Christ on behalf of his people. Is it sub-Christian? Is it sub-par? Should we view this as less uh, inspired or something in comparison to the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter? Well, obviously not. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And in fact, James is one of the earliest epistles. And so when Paul wrote that statement in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the epistle of James was already written. All Scripture is 
inspired by God, breathed out by God, given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness to equip us for every good work. So it's not sub-Christian, it's not sub-par. In fact, if you look at the epistle of Jude, you'll find that in some sense, Jude takes the same exact approach. He says, I'd love to wax eloquent on the common faith that we have, but there are direct threats to the church, the church's doctrine, and especially the church's practice. People are perverting the grace of God. And so Jude takes a very similar approach to James. Now what's interesting is that when scholars analyze the epistle of James, one comment that you'll find that runs through virtually every commentator is that they say that of all the other uh, biblical figures, of all the other New Testament biblical figures, James's writings seem to align most in their style and method with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Uh, if you read the teachings of Christ in the Gospels and you read the epistle of James, there is a striking correlation and similarity between the method of teaching and instruction. And you could say the same in a sense when you look at Jude, but the point is, these are two of the apostles, regardless of whether you take the view that they're uh, Jesus' half-brothers by way of uh, Joseph and Mary, or if you take the view that they're Jesus' cousins, either way, James and Jude are the ones that most people in the Christian church throughout history have believed had some type of physical uh, relation to the Lord Jesus Christ after the flesh. So these are uh, arguably two of his closest associates, arguably two of his apostles, and, and especially James is one who seems to follow the methodology of the Lord time and time again. Now what's his rationale? Why would James take this approach? Does it mean James is any less committed to the gospel than Paul was? Does it mean that James always preached and taught and wrote uh, messages in this way? I don't think it means any of that. But I think it means in this particular case, he's writing to people that he knows they already know those other things. And in fact, if we take our cue from Jude, who writes very similarly, Jude verse 3 Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. Now listen, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying people are perverting the grace of God, and his response is to take this approach. Now, of course, Paul dealt with that. Paul dealt with people that perverted the gospel to promote unrighteousness. And as we go through the epistle of the Romans, we're going to see Paul's redemptive historical approach and Paul's application of the gospel to all of these different issues. And that is a valid approach, obviously but so is the approach of James and Jude. And they're dealing with people who understand the Gospel, who understand that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, who understand justification by faith alone, who understand 
the saving work of Christ on our behalf, so on and so forth. They understand that. Uh, And apparently that's not enough to get the message across, or at least that's his perception. Certainly it is enough in one sense. but, But he's saying, listen, I'm just going to directly address you with your obligations. And we're not going to focus on all the things, the, the common capital that we have. We're going to get to the chase, cut to the point. An ungarnished call to get serious. And that's important. We need to be able to read that. We need to be able to take that without finding fault. If you look at James's epistle, you'll find that it in fact does sound a lot like the Old Testament prophets. And I, I, I would simply say this, that if you regularly read the Bible, you will find that large portions of the Bible don't mention anything about the death and resurrection of Christ. God expects you to imbibe and receive the parts that do and take them into account when you read the large sections of important edifying material that don't. And this gets back to James' call to maturity. We need to be able to take the whole counsel of God and we need to be able to say, okay, I'm able to read the book of Jeremiah or the epistle of James. And there's certainly references to Christ, but they're sparing and the focus is on honoring God, glorifying God, obeying God, and and so on and so forth. And I need to be able to draw in all the passages from Romans and Galatians and, and all these things. And I need to be able to take those with me when I dive into James. Or when I hear a sermon uh, that's similar to the way James approaches it. Now James gives us practical instructions for overcoming worldly lust. He's not just you know, calling God's people out and leaving a heavy burden upon their backs. He gives practical instructions. There's a sense of urgency. James is saying you need to act now. Here you are focusing on your worldly business, saying today or tomorrow or next year we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to earn money, we're going to make a profit. And, And he says you're forgetting how short your life is and how urgent it is that you wake up and deal with these issues in your life. Uh, it's time to get serious. Forget about all these business plans and think about your soul. Think about your eternity. Your life is but a vapor to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it or who puts it off so they can make plans for the future. Uh, it's sin. And he confronts that. There's an urgency and there's a need for action. Notice there's practical instruction, something that you as a Christian need to do. Something you need to do. We saw this morning, and we'll see next Wednesday morning, Lord willing, that the justified believer is one who does not work. Right? In the matter of justification before God, the believer is not the one who works, the one, but the one who doesn't work. The one who trusts and puts his faith in the one who justifies the ungodly through faith in Christ. And so it's important in justification to understand that. We rest in the finished work of Christ. It is finished, no question about it. But what James says is equally true, especially with respect to sanctification. Sanctification is not passive. It's a work of God, but it's a work of God that's very different than, say, our regeneration or our justification. 
It's a work of God wherein we are actively willing and working for His good pleasure. We're working out our own salvation. He's willing and working in us. We're willing and working, uh, as we see in this text, submitting to God, drawing near to God, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts. You say, well, God's supposed to purify my hearts. Yes, my friends, He is, but the way He purifies your heart in sanctification is by enabling you by the Spirit to cleanse your hands and purify your heart. That's a clear biblical teaching. 2 Corinthians 7.1 tells us that in light of God's gracious promises, He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. 1 John tells us the true Christian purifies himself as Christ Himself is pure. So there's activity that's involved. We're not passive We need these instructions and we need to run with these instructions and act now. Act with urgency. It's time to get serious. What are these instructions? First, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. This is an important exhortation from James, from the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle James. Humble yourself. Notice in verses 1-3 through how self-absorbed these believers are. These regenerate Christians, many of them. Uh, They're self-absorbed. They're they're thinking about the things that the Gentiles seek. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? They're seeking worldly pleasure, worldly comfort. They're competing with other people to get a bigger piece of the pie. And it's all about them. All about their pleasures and power and possessions and so forth. Humble yourself. It's not about us. It's not about us. Imagine somebody walking up to you and accusing you of being an adulterer, a spiritual adulterer or adulteress. That's humbling. That's humiliating. Sometimes I think we should use the word humiliation rather than humility, just at times to get the full picture of what it means to humble ourselves It's not about me. It's not about my comfort, my pleasure, my position. It's not about these things. In fact, I've let the Lord down. I'm unfaithful. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's infinite wrath by nature. Even in the Christian life, how unfaithful I've been, an adulterer, an adulteress. How many churches, how many churches would be willing, if you had uh, pulpit supply and... and, uh, you know, I was out of town, let's just say in this scenario, we had pulpit supply come in, uh, not quoting James, but just accusing you all of being adulterers and adulteresses. That's shocking. And to be able to hear that requires humility without, you know, throwing something at the preacher. It requires humility. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. He's convicting us of our sins. We've made promises to our spiritual head and husband. We've promised to diligently read the Bible. We've promised to engage in private prayer. We've promised uh, to, to observe the sacraments in faith. We've promised to encourage others in the Lord. We've promised to do so many things, to endeavor to forsake all sin. We've made all these promises, uh, promising repentance and faith and covenanting with the Lord and how unfaithful we've been. 
And what does it mean when you're unfaithful to a marriage covenant? It's adultery. Uh, The Spirit yearns jealously over us. The Scripture doesn't say in vain that God's name is jealous. The Spirit yearns jealously over us, especially when we bring in these other things in our lives that become more important than God. If you were at the... uh, If you were at the wedding not too long ago in Indianapolis, there was a comment made in one of the speeches in the reception about the importance of someone making his faith the most important thing in his life. That stuck with me. And I think that's something we need to use to examine ourselves. Is your faith the most important thing in your life? Is it really? If not, you have an idol. Whatever else has come between you and God as the number one priority in your life, the most important thing, the thing that really gets you energized, that motivates you, the thing that drives your priorities and your use of time, then James is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, you're an adulterer and and God is jealous as a jealous spouse over your heart and over your time and over your priorities. Uh, James confronts them, adulterers. Notice, he, he says elsewhere, you sinners, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It takes humility to hear that. It takes humility for me to hear that. It takes for humility for you to hear that. A- as a Christian, to hear somebody calling you an adulterer, an adulteress, a sinner, a double-minded person. Now, certainly some of these people may have been unconverted, but I'm saying he says this to the whole group. And it's convicting for believers. It's humbling. Who are you, he says later, who are you to judge another? That's provocative. I mean, if somebody walks up to you and says, who do you think you are? That's what he's saying. And in fact, verse 6 But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we need, to, we need to take this in. We need to humble ourselves. We need to embrace the humiliation of our own unfaithfulness to God. Of course, God forgives us. Jesus died to take away our sin. No question. We're bringing Paul and Peter and all these things. We're bringing them to bear here. But we're humbling ourselves under His mighty hand. Yes, I'm an adulterer. In a limited way. Not saying, you know, if you're a believer, you shouldn't confess, oh, I'm an unconverted wretch. But, but yes, in a limited sense, I'm an adulterer. I'm a sinner. There are aspects of my life that are double-minded. I've compartmentalized my life and put God in a box and let my worldly desires run wild. Double-minded. I've become judgmental about other people when I should have been examining myself and being more faithful. Who am I to judge another? It's very humbling here to have James calling us out and using one of the most powerful three-letter words in the English language, you. I counted this up. I don't know where it is in my notes, probably somewhere further down in the sermon notes that we won't get to, but um, I think it was 30 times in this chapter, 17 verses. I think it was 30 times it says you or your confrontational. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, you double-minded. My friends, this ought to humble us. We ought to be humbled and we ought to recognize that if we come into the presence of God with 
even an ounce of entitlement, thinking, oh no, this isn't me, I don't need to repent, I don't need to be spoken to this way, Uh, I I don't want to hear this, I want to hear something else. Uh, If we come into God's presence in worship in that way, or, or in any context in that way, we're told God is going to resist us. Think about that. How are you going to overcome your sin if God Himself is resisting you? Now, I'm not saying that He becomes your enemy in the ultimate sense, dear believer. Certainly the unconverted, He resists them and brings them to nothing. But God resists the proud. How am I going to overcome my sin? How are you going to overcome your sin if God is resisting you? He gives grace to the humble. And that means we need to humble ourselves in the ultimate sense and say, Lord, I'm proud. Humble me. So that when we run across these trials and afflictions that James talks about, we can count it all joy in this sense that it brings us down. That it humbles us and makes us fit recipients of the the grace of God to overcome sin. In his writings on mortification of sin and overcoming temptation, the Puritan author John Owen makes the point that there are times in the lives of certain believers where God may withhold the grace from a certain person and permit them to go on in their backsliding and even to come under something of the bondage of sin. Not the full-fledged bondage of sin, but Romans 7, you know, sold under sin. He permits a believer to go through that process And He permits sin to to wreak havoc for a time upon their lives, perhaps even a sinful addiction in the life of a true Christian, and He does it to humble them. To humble them. As you look at Romans 7, by the end of Paul's battle with sin, he's saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It humbled him. And then chapter 8, he's victorious. So could it be if you're battling a specific worldly lust in your life and you're not having success and you don't seem to be making any strides any progress certainly all these points I mean we're not going to get to them I have eight of them we'll get to them next time uh, whenever that is but this sermon all these points are for you especially if you're in that situation but the first one is relevant humble yourself because God gives grace to the humble And it could be that this sin that's been ravaging you, God has permitted it to do so until you humble yourself and seek His grace. What does that mean? It means humbling yourself by recognizing, I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. I need grace from God. How do I get grace? Through the means of grace. So it's not me sitting back waiting for the Spirit to move me. It's me going to the Spirit-inspired Scriptures that equip me for every good work. And it means going to them at least once a day. But I would say, uh, you know, it's like if you're sick, you, you wouldn't take your vitamin D just once a day. You know, it's, But if, if you're really getting hit by something, you might take multiple uh, capsules. You might take a lot of different vitamins to, to, to act in a remedial way, to fight that virus or whatever conventional path you take there. But you see the point. Um, there's preventative and then there's remedial. If you're currently battling sin and losing the battle and Satan's uh, just wiping the battlefield with you, then the fact of the matter is 
you need to be in your Bible more than once a day. You need to get in that Bible and, in a sense, not come out other than, you know, when, you know, work and food and things like that. You need to get in that Bible a lot because that is your spiritual sword. That is your spiritual food and strengthening. We could go up and down the references in the Scriptures to the importance of reading, knowing, meditating on, believing, applying the Bible. The Bible is the key. And why are you not in the Bible? Do you think you don't need the Bible? See, there's pride. Why are you not regularly in prayer? Self-sufficiency? I mean, if you're not regularly at set times shutting your door and going before the Father in the secret place, what you're really saying is, I don't need God. You may not want to be saying that. You may not say that explicitly. But you have not because you ask not. And you're asking not uh, perhaps for a variety of reasons, but one of the most common is you're just not realizing your need for God. If you realize that need, if you're humbled to the point of saying, I'm powerless, I need grace from God, you're going to get into the means of grace. You're going to get into the Word. You're going to get into the prayer. It's going to become the most important thing in your life. If you were diagnosed with cancer, my guess is you'd be reading a lot of articles about cancer. You'd be spending a lot of time driving back and forth to the cancer clinic or again, fill in the blank with your own views on medicine. But you'd be doing a lot. It would, it would consume your life in many respects to try to fight it, conquer it, overcome it. You'd be looking at all different kinds of means and methods. Your conversations with other people perhaps would be filled with trying to inquire about these things. Okay, well you have something worse than cancer. A besetting sin that is threatening your soul, it's stealing your joy, it's, it's dragging you down. You need to humble yourself and get help. And that means making time with the means of grace. Humble yourself. Uh, in our remaining time, let me, let me just hit my second point here. Unfriend the world. Unfriend the world. We think of... Uh, Friend as a noun, but I suppose in today's social media environment, friend is a verb. You friend someone on the social media site, or perhaps, uh, I think you can still do this, you unfriend the person, or you block them. Well, James is saying here that the people of God to whom he's writing need to unfriend the world. They've become too close to the world. They're fraternizing with the enemy they're imbibing the spirit of the world. They're associating with the world. They're assimilating to the world. They're committing adultery with the world. And you look at verses 4 and 5. He just says it right out. Uh, adulterers. Adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now again, we can look at that from the standpoint of converted or unconverted. Okay? The very first gospel promise says that when someone is converted, that God creates in their heart an enmity against the serpent. Uh, one of the first marks of grace, I was just reading this in uh, Peter Van Maastricht this afternoon, one of the first marks of grace in a believer, a regenerate Christian, is they hate sin. They hate the world. They hate the flesh. They hate the devil. And there's an enmity 
between the, the truly regenerate Christian and the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's an enmity. There's a hatred. And, and of course, there's a corresponding love for God and love for His Word and love for Christ. You, you, know, you see the emphasis later on, draw near to God. But, but there's a hatred of the world. There's a refusal to be a friend of the world that, it, that marks out a Christian. But of course, we know that as Christians... Uh, our Christian lives can go up and down and we can backslide and we can grow more and more friendly to the ways of this world. And uh, there are many true Christians that fall into this as evidenced by the fact that James is addressing it here. Now, perhaps there's an unconverted person in the church here today and they need to take this message to heart and repent and believe. But my guess is that that, uh, in, in a meeting like this, there are many Christians, true Christians, who also need to hear this message as there were in the days of James. Now, what he's saying here is you you need to cut off your association with the world. Jesus says that His kingdom is not of this world. His people are going to be in the world. He's not going to take us out of the world. Uh, We're going to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're not to be associated or we could say, affiliated with the world. In fact, the word used for friendship here is a word from which we get the word affiliation. Friendship, brotherly love, uh, association. Uh, The passage that uh, I had thought we might read for our Scripture reading, but we didn't from 2 Corinthians 6, tells us, uh, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's saying, you're married to me. You're affiliated. You're associated. You're wedded to me. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Right? You get married. And though we didn't use these vows in the recent wedding, I don't think I've ever used these vows, but you know, we, we've heard these vows before in our culture, forsaking all others. There's something to that when we get married. Forsaking all others uh, to be joined as husband and wife. Well, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Unfriend the world. Don't associate with the world. Don't make your closest friends, and I would even say, don't make any of your true friends people that are not walking with the Lord. You could even make the case that you shouldn't have a friendship with a believer who's backsliding. Although perhaps, you know, you know God may give you an opportunity, as Galatians 6 says, in a spiritual way to reclaim a brother. But be very careful Be very careful about those that you spend time with. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 And that passage is dealing actually with false doctrine that affects our morals. So be careful the people that you hang with. Be careful the people you associate with in terms of their doctrine, in terms of their practice, in terms of their godliness, in terms of their commitment to Christ. I mean, definitely, if God gives you an opportunity to reach out to someone who's struggling, use your discernment. But too often, uh, especially young people in the church are undiscerning 
and perhaps even single people start spending time with the wrong person. There's, a, there's a, an unhealthy influence and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we're dragged down rather than lifted up by the people that we associate with. In this case, God's people are so associating with the world, perhaps in the Jewish community, it seems like there's a Jewish flavor to this epistle. Uh, he speaks of them as the 12 tribes and so on. Uh, so maybe these are mainly Jewish believers getting sucked into their Jewish culture, their Jewish uh, family ties, and the influence of the, the sorts of things that their relatives are into, lusting for pleasure and money and gain and all that. And so he's saying, you're associating with them too much and you're assimilating to them, right? You're starting to think like them, prioritize like them, look like them, act like them. Uh, your desires are starting to sound like theirs. 1 John two fifteen and 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. For uh, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And he goes on to say that, that the world desires these things. The lust of the eyes covetousness, the lust of the flesh, sensual appetites, satisfying them at all costs outside of God's blueprint, and uh, the pride of life. You can see all these things factoring in with the people in James 4. It also says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world. See, there's a desire to be accepted by the world. There's a desire to be viewed by the world, whether it's like the Jews in this passage perhaps, uh, viewed positively, respected, revered among our friends and family, in our community, in the workplace, the expectations that people put on us in terms of what we're supposed to achieve and do, so on and so forth. And what happens is we seek to win the acclamations of the world. We seek to win approval from the world. We want to be a friend of the world. We desperately want to impress the world. Uh, with our life, with our uh, possessions, with our home, with our children, with all these things, we want to be a friend of the world. Maybe the world's not so friendly, but we're trying as hard as we can uh, to be a friend of the world, to be accepted by the world. And we're assimilating. We're playing by their rules. We're playing their game to get the, the prize that they're seeking. And, and, and at the end of the day, the prize that they're seeking is limited to this life, which he says is a vapor that vanishes away. Uh, nothing wrong with saying, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go and make money and make a profit and support my family. But you see, they're prioritizing these things. And verse 17, they're ignoring good things that they know they should be doing. And they're seeking after things that are simply going to vanish away. Why? Because the world is. The world's saying, who will show us any good? It's what many people say. Psalm 4, verses 2 and 3. It's, it's just vanity of vanities. And all is vanity. And we can, we can fall prey to that. And it's adultery. God is jealous. God will not sit idly by while His people spend more time doing this, that, and the other thing for pleasure and entertainment or even in, in working, in terms of earning money, in terms of this or that prioritizing these other things at the expense of a living, breathing, daily relationship to Him through the Word and prayer. At the expense of actively serving God in the midst of the church. At the expense of raising our children 
in the Lord, instructing them, disciplining them. My friends, these things take time. You're not going to raise godly children. Uh, Of course, you can't make them godly, but you know what I mean there. You can't raise godly children without investing a lot of time that the world's not investing. So you're not going to be able to do all the things that the world's doing with its time if you're committed to doing the things God's called you to do. The world's not spending its time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, seeking God in prayer. The world's not spending time having family worship, instructing their children. The the world's not spending its money in tithing to the church. I mean, we could go on and on. The lifestyle of the Christian in a uh, marriage covenant with the Lord just doesn't give us the same amount of time to pursue what the world is pursuing. And so we can't associate with the world and compare ourselves to the world and try to achieve what the world is achieving on the same scale. Because if we do, we're going to be leaving behind the substance, the sum and substance of our marriage covenant to the Lord. We're not going to be keeping our vows. We're going to let these other cares and concerns choke out the Word in our lives, as Jesus says in the parable. So beware of this. Prioritize the Word of God in your life. What what is it that you can do to unfriend the world? There's supposed to be practical instructions. I want to end with this. What does Jesus pray in John 17, 14 and following? Listen to what Jesus says. A great high priest. He knows our adulterous hearts. He knows our unfaithfulness. He knows the struggles, the trials, the things we're going to face in the Christian life. And He intercedes for us before the Father. John 17, 14. I have given them your word. God has given you the Scriptures. God has given you. Christ has given you the word. Notice how central and fundamental the role of God's word is in sanctifying you from worldliness, in cleansing you from worldliness, in detaching you and disassociating you from the world and, um, you know, whatever the opposite of uh, assimilation is, right? Just deconforming you. That's not even a word. But taking that worldliness out of your life and conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God. I have given them Your Word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Okay? So when you are reading the Word, when you're meditating on the Word, when you're making the study of the Bible central, top priority in your life, first, uh, the first voice you hear every morning, as it were, is the voice of God and His Word. You're prioritizing the Scriptures. When you do that, the world's going to notice. It's going to have such an effect on you that the world is going to notice you're not like them. And in some sense, it's going to prevent you as you're studying and imbibing and loving and obeying the Word of God as central in your life before you even have a chance to be tempted to to be a friend of the world. They're going to reject you, right? The Word of God works powerfully to make us like Christ. They hated Him and they'll hate us. And, and, And He's given the Word to do that because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. So he's not saying you shouldn't spend any time making money and providing for your family. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying you shouldn't interact charitably with non-Christians in the workplace. You should demand, I have to work for a Christian and I won't work anywhere where they take God's name in vain. No, he's not saying any of that. He sent you into the world. There are going to be worldly people and you need to spend a big chunk of your life doing earthly mundane tasks where you may be rubbing shoulders with ungodly people by necessity. Okay, You're not going out of your way, but they're there and you're dealing with that. He says, I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm not sending you to the monastery. Okay, You're in the world. He's not taking you out of the world. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Listen, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How are you going to be sanctified? By the Word. Jesus says, I've given them the Word. I've given you the Word. I've given you the Bible. You have it. You have it in 15 different translations. Pick one that's faithful. How about the New King James or King James? Something like that. Pick one out. Read it. Meditate on it. This is the means by which the Father, by His Spirit, sanctifies you in His truth. It is by the Word of truth. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What's he saying? I'm set apart to be your Savior. I'm sanctifying myself to go to the cross, to rise again, to intercede for you as your great high priest. I'm setting myself apart so that when you open my word, I will be speaking to you. I will be sanctifying you. My Spirit will be working in your life. I'm setting myself apart to do my part, which is to be your sanctifier, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has set Himself apart as your Savior and Lord, as your prophet, priest, and King, as the Lord who sanctifies you, that He set Himself apart He is your Savior, and that now He blesses the Word of God in your life as a means of sanctification. I would say that's practical instruction for overcoming worldly lust. I would say that's at the heart of practical Christian growth and maturity, and now is the time. It's time to break up your fallow ground. It's time to bust out that dusty old book from your shelf, the Bible. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to open up and study the Word of God prayerfully in reliance upon Him. It's time. There may be other things. There may be other concerns. Uh, There may be things that tempt you to stay up late at night, get to bed earlier, get up earlier, open up the Word of God, and you, well, if you read the Bible, you won't be surprised, but let's face it, when this happens in our lives, we are shocked and amazed. We're shocked and amazed at the sanctifying power of the Scriptures in our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are nothing. We are adulterers and adulteresses. We are sinners. And we see evidence of double-mindedness in our lives. We are unworthy of the least of Your mercies. We in our pride are even offended by passages like this at times. But we humble ourselves before You. 
desiring that you would give us more grace and more and more and more and more. That where sin has abounded, grace would abound all the more. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom to seek that grace actively in the means of grace. That we would carve out that time with you as of first importance. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.